start off this week with a correction from last episode. Thankfully, it's not a factual error. It'd be really embarrassing to faceplant like that 10 seconds out of the gate, but something that needs to be addressed. In the last episode, I told you about the former director of interpretation at Tumacocri National Historic Park, who argued that Arizona is a Basque word. Without any sort of guide to go off of, I pronounced his last name as Garrett, which is how it looks if it were an English name. But a friend and former co-worker reached out to me to let me know that she had actually met him many years ago, and the last name was pronounced as it would be in Spanish, so Garate. So this is my apology to him and also those who knew how it was supposed to be pronounced. I will be using Garate as a source several more times moving forward, so I'm glad I got this out of the way now. With that, back to the show. I'd like to start today with a little word association. I'm going to name some places, and I want you to think of what comes to mind. Ready? Here they are. Middle Earth, Hogwarts, Westeros, Wonderland, and let's say Narnia. Well, what did you think of? If you've been anywhere near pop culture in the last few decades, I'm willing to bet some pretty specific things came to mind. It's a general rule that a great story needs an equally great setting. And, my examples aside, this holds true even outside the fantasy genre. Just think of every drama or cop show you've ever seen where characters rhapsodize about what they love about living in New York or Los Angeles. Today, I want you to do something similar with me. Because the setting for this place we call Arizona, even more than most places, has defined its history. Its unique resources have sustained inhabitants, its burning deserts and harsh terrain have repelled settlers, and its natural marvels and rugged grandeur still bring in millions of tourists today. So let's take a deep dive into the physical makeup of Arizona and answer the question of why exactly it is that we have so many great-looking holes in the ground. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you're listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 2, All the Pretty Rocks. Fair warning up front, we're going to be talking a lot today about geology. So yeah, no Wyatt Earp yet. I want to spend this week and the next setting up the backdrop and supporting characters that the drama of our state will play across. I realize these are not topics for everyone, so my goal is to work them into the history of Arizona, or prehistory as the case may be, rather than talk you through, say, the specific type of rock formations one can find in the state. If someone is interested in that sort of information, I would point them to Arizona's entry in the Roadside Geology book series. Also, the Arizona Geological Survey has their down-to-earth geology guide series, as well as archives of its newsletters going back decades, which are written for the layperson and easily accessible. I've included links to these on the website, azhistorypodcast.com. Second warning, I am in no way, shape, or form a geologist. Sometimes my terminology might be imprecise or my explanation simplistic. It's a complicated science, and I can only give you a brief sketch of what we know, or what I know of what we know. If you're willing to forgive me for that, let's dive in. When we talk in terms of geology and natural history, we have to vastly readjust our scale for time. For the next little bit, we will be measuring the speed of relatively quick or even just moderate changes in millions of years. With the exception of the Behringer meteor crater, which we'll get to in a bit, nothing we're gonna talk about today happened in an instant. But you give the Earth a few hundred million years, it will work some miracles. Most of that is due to what we call plate tectonics. As you might remember from high school, plate tectonics says that the Earth's crust is made up of large segments, or plates, which constantly shift and rub up against each other. 
Go back in time far enough, and geologists tell us that the continents, which sit on top of these plates, move and collide with each other frequently, in geological terms, sometimes forming supercontinents that bear little resemblance to what we know today. The chunk of land that we now call Arizona, for example, has been as far away as 80 degrees south latitude, roughly northern Antarctica today. It's also spent some time at the equator as well. I bring all this up because this moving around and colliding of plates helps shape the general physical makeup of Arizona much more than you might realize. For example, in the Paleozoic era, which is roughly 570 million to 240 million years ago, the western part of this state was routinely, and again that's according to a geological timescale, covered with water. This part of the continent appears to have flexed upward and downward, hinged along a line of more stable rock running through modern-day Colorado and New Mexico, which allowed the ocean to advance and retreat several times over the course of some 330 million years. In fact, one theory about the origin of the brilliant red sandstone that makes up those majestic vistas around Sedona is that it was originally a beach or an offshore sandbar of one of these ocean advances more than 500 million years ago. In any case, we know that mud, sand, and other minerals from the periods of inundation and dryness eventually form the sandstone that now appears in the Oak Creek Canyon area. And in case you're wondering, the characteristic red color of this sandstone, known as the Supai group, comes from the inclusion of iron oxide. Skip forward a few hundred million years, and another seaway, this time coming from the north and east, may have intruded on parts of Arizona. Known as the Western Interior Seaway, this waterway existed during the Cretaceous period, which is some 63 to 138 million years ago, and basically connected the Arctic Sea to the Gulf of Mexico, and stretched roughly from the modern-day Rockies to the Appalachians. If you've ever been to the Midwest, this ancient seaway is responsible for a good deal of its geology. This relatively shallow sea appears to have snipped the northeast corner of Arizona, covering parts of Coconino, Apache, and Navajo counties but it was about 75 million years ago that the real fun started. It is then in the late Cretaceous period that a westward-drifting North American plate began to collide with and override an eastward-moving plate. The forces caused compression in the Earth's crust. Forcing it into wrinkles like a rug pushed against a wall is the way that the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum's volume on natural history describes it. Known as the Laramide orogeny, orogeny being the term for a mountain-building event, this is what helped create the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Madre Occidental Ranges. The origin of several of Arizona's current mountain ranges can be traced back to this compression and wrinkling, though it will take a few more large-scale events to get them to their current configurations. This quote-unquote event would last roughly 25 million years. Let's skip forward millions of more years when the North American plate would come in contact with the Pacific Ocean plate. But instead of a direct push against each other, which would cause more compression, the Pacific plate was moving laterally to the northwest. This is what's known as transform activity in geologic terms. This is also the birthplace of the infamous San Andreas Fault, which is where the Pacific and North American plates are rubbing up against each other laterally. Since the plates are not pushing up against each other, the compression pressure from the previous plate collision was released, and the crust began to stretch and crack like the surface of a pumpkin pie cooling, again in the colorful description by the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum. 
But in the lower portions of the crust, intense heat from that compression pressure had melted or softened portions of the underlying rock, making it more amenable to stretching than the top layer. This caused what is known as block faulting, where great blocks of the mountain ranges would drop horizontally as the compression released, while others rose and would tilt, listing like a ship. The best explanation for non-geologists I've heard for all this is to think of biting into a chocolate-covered caramel candy bar. The pressure causes the harder chocolate to crack and move in place, while the gooier caramel stretches. Over millions of years, erosion would whittle down the uplifted rocks to the mountains we know today, while also filling up the valleys created by this activity. It's a little sobering to realize that when you are on the floor of a valley, there is actually thousands of feet of this valley fill below you. In the Tucson Basin, for example, it is estimated there is 11,000 feet between your shoes and actual bedrock. The result is that Arizona, and much of the western United States, lies in what is known as the Basin and Range region, where these unique geological forces have created more than 500 mountain ranges that generally run on a northeast-southwest line. On a map, they look like large caterpillars crawling out of Mexico, in the words of renowned geologist Clarence Dutton. But accompanying and intermixing with all this mountain building was a good deal of volcanic activity. In fact, magma and volcanoes have played a much larger role in shaping Arizona's landscape than you might realize. Keep in mind that when we say volcanic activity, we aren't always talking about a Mount St. Helens-type cataclysmic event. As a 2000 article in the Arizona Geological Survey's newsletter explains, eruptions during the last 15 million years had magma containing less silica, which means they were less viscous and tended to flow like hot tar rather than explosively erupt. And if that sounds rather anticlimactic, don't worry, these types of flows have still managed to produce some grand wonders. If you travel a few miles northwest on US-180 out of Flagstaff, you can turn down a couple forest roads to a small dirt parking lot. At first glance, you'll see the same field of ponderosa pine trees that make up most of the area. But a short walk will bring you to a large hole, inside of which sits the craggy mouth of a cave. This is Lava River Cave, the remnants of a lava tube made some 675,000 years ago. A lava tube is made when the sides of flowing lava come in contact with the ground and cool and solidify quickly. Then the thicker and hotter center crusts over while in contact with a cooler atmosphere, forming something of a straw. But inside this straw, lava is continuing to flow and push forward. As long as the lava continues to flow, the tube will keep increasing. That's exactly what happened here. In this case, the lava came from a vent in nearby Hart Prairie. Sometime in the past, a portion of the cave's ceiling collapsed, revealing the tube underneath. It's now managed by the Coconino National Forest and open to visitors who feel like exploring. The tube itself is almost a mile long, with caverns reaching as high as 30 feet. The inside maintains a temperature of 32 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit year-round. Inside, as long as you have a good flashlight or two, you can see lava sickles, basically where the heat from the lava caused the rocks overhead to start to melt and drip into the flow. The walls also bear traces of where stones drop from the ceiling, causing lava to splash against the sides of the tube. In a word, it's pretty cool to see all this in person. I posted a video of a recent visit I made with a friend to Lava River Cave on the website if you want to get an impression of what it's like in person. Fair warning, it's an amateur video and the cave is extremely dark, so please don't hold that against me. 
But back to the story. Similar flows like the one that formed Lava River Cave, only above ground, have also left their mark on the landscape. One such flow, roughly 19,000 years ago, emerged from what is today known as Merriam Crater, northeast of Winona, and proceeded to flow for about 10 miles before damming the Little Colorado River. Eventually, the Ponded River flowed around the northeast end of this lava dam into a canyon. The result of this course change is Grand Falls, sometimes known as Chocolate Falls. Located on the Navajo Reservation, where the river has slowly eroded away the sedimentary rock layers, Grand Falls is actually taller than Niagara Falls, though it goes through a couple of tiers or steps instead of a straight drop. It's a spectacular sight in the early spring as snowmelt in the White Mountains feeds the muddy river. It's also been suggested that the eponymous bend of the Gila River at the town of Gila Bend was caused by volcanic activity displacing the river from its original course. Also, anyone who's ever driven around the Payson area has seen the Mogollon Rim, that large vertical escarpment that marks the edge of the Colorado Plateau. However, heading west on State Route 260 from north of Strawberry toward Camp Verde, this prominent feature is, well, less prominent. The reason? Ancient lava flows that poured over the edge helped bury it under layers of volcanic rock. But we wouldn't have the same amount of fun talking about volcanic activity if we didn't also discuss the big ones, or the explosive events most people think of. Because if you look around Arizona, there have been quite a few of them. We can start with the San Francisco Peaks, just north of Flagstaff. Today, the tallest peak is Mount Humphreys at 12,633 feet. But that's only after a violent eruption destroyed anywhere between 2,500 to 3,000 feet off the top and eastern side of the mountain some 200,000 to 400,000 years ago. In fact, the San Francisco Peaks are classified as one of the few stratovolcanoes in the southwest. For comparison, the stratovolcano category includes other notables such as Mount Vesuvius, Mount St. Helens, and Krakatoa. Further south, about 18 million years ago, a volcano exploded and helped form the Superstition Mountains east of Phoenix. A series of explosive eruptions occurred 27 million years ago in the Chiricahua Mountains in southeastern Arizona that resulted in ash beds that were about 2,000 feet deep. And in the Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, cinder cones and basalt flows have occurred anywhere between a few million and several thousand years ago. Today, Arizona has seven volcanic fields which are relatively young, meaning they've been active sometime in the last four million years. They are the Uncaret, which is north of the Grand Canyon, Flagstaff, which is basically the greater San Francisco Peaks area, Springerville, centered east of the town of the same name, San Carlos, on the reservation of the same name, northeast of Globe, San Bernardino, in the extreme southeast corner of the state, east and northeast of Douglas, Sentinel, along I-8, near the location of the same name between Gila Bend and Yuma, and Pinacate, southeast of Yuma and part of a field that stretches up from the Mexican state of Sonora. Though there does not appear to be any immediate danger, we are told that we should look at these fields as dormant, not extinct. It's also helpful to remember that all this is not ancient history. Sunset Crater, a 1,000-foot cinder cone crater north of Flagstaff, first appeared around the year 1064 AD. Yes, AD, and may have erupted over the course of the next century. And when I say first appeared, I mean that. Believe it or not, but the cone, nearly a mile wide at the base, and as I said, a thousand feet up, 
did not appear to exist before the eruption, which occurred along a vent fissure that formed several other cones in the area as well. The local inhabitants at the time, dubbed the Sinagua people by archaeologists, had to evacuate the area. The lava fountain could potentially have been seen from a distance of 30 miles, and the ash plume far beyond that. After these eruptions, archaeologists point to an uptick at the settlement of Wuptapki, 20 miles to the north, possibly due to migration from this area and a boon to farming as a thin ash layer from the eruption formed a kind of water-retaining mulch. Interesting enough, we do have what are known as corn rocks, or impressions left in the resulting stone of corn that seems to have been deliberately placed by these ancestral Puebloan people to allow spatter from the eruption to cover them. I guess you could call it the volcanic version of putting a penny on the railroad tracks. But as devastating as eruptions could be, Arizona has one very good reason to be grateful for all this activity. Copper. As Mike Conway at the Arizona Geological Survey explained, volcanism tends to liberate, or bring closer to the surface, precious metals such as copper, silver, lead, gold, and platinum. If you look at a map of some of the best-producing historic and current copper mines in the state, including the Copper Queen in Bisbee and Morency Mine in Greenland County, they correspond with where volcanic activity occurred in the last 82 to 11 million years. Copper will play a major part in our story going forward, so you can say that the history of the state is deeply intertwined with its volcanic past. Funny enough, though, one of Arizona's greatest marvels was originally thought to be part of all this volcanic jostling, but the truth turned out to be much more out there. And that leads us to our next hole in the ground. The flash must have been blinding, and the roar deafening. In less than 10 seconds, what once was just another stretch of an almost featureless expanse of the Colorado Plateau suddenly became a massive hole more than a mile wide and 700 feet deep. The impact, made some 50,000 years ago, was from a meteor, Containing mostly iron and nickel, it was some 150 feet across and screamed through the air at nearly 26,000 miles per hour before striking the ground. For some perspective, at that speed it would take you 5 seconds to travel between New York and Los Angeles. It struck with the force of 20 million tons of TNT. The majority of the meteorite, not to mention the ground it hit, was either vaporized or melted as the pressure from the strike reached 20 million pounds per square inch. 175 million tons of native limestone or sandstone was thrown out of the hole and blanketed the surrounding ground for up to a mile. This is Meteor Crater, or sometimes Behringer Meteor Crater, in northern Arizona, about 40 miles east of Flagstaff along Interstate 40. It's roughly 550 feet deep today, after tens of thousands of years of erosion, 4,000 feet in diameter, and the rim has a circumference of 2.4 miles. Besides being an impressive sight, I mean, you can fit the Washington Monument vertically and 20 football fields horizontally inside of it, Meteor Crater is an important scientific spot. It is, in fact, the first identified and best preserved crater on the face of the planet. Jeff Beal, a tour guide at the crater since 2013, said the meteor landed in the absolute perfect spot to be preserved. The area is a high arid plateau located in the weather shadow of the nearby San Francisco peaks, which helps keep erosion forces at bay. And because it's so well preserved, it's big enough to shock visitors with its size and give a scale for how violent a meteor impact can be. 
when it hit, it would have destroyed or incinerated everything up to 10 miles, or killed a lot of lizards and rattlesnakes, as Bill likes to tell guests to the crater. Other research tells us that large animals, which at this point in history would have included mastodons, mammoths, camels, bison, and giant ground sloths, would have been killed or wounded as far out as 15 miles or the edge of modern-day Winslow. Hurricane-force winds would have gone out to about another 10 miles past that. But Bill also pointed out that another reason it's so well-preserved is because it actually is a fairly small impact crater. Of the roughly 200 other crater sites identified on Earth, most are no longer immediately recognizable due to erosion and other geological forces, and because they are so large. For example, the Chicheloup Crater, now buried under Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, and the one presumed to have dealt the death blow to the dinosaurs, is more than 100 miles across, Bill said. We know all of this today after more than a century of study. In fact, the floor of the crater is still a hub of active research, but it wasn't always so. What the original American Indians thought of the crater, we can't know, but we do know that they were aware of its existence and have left evidence of having visited the rim. Initially, the water table was high enough that a small lake would have formed on the crater's floor, something that disappeared as the surrounding landscape grew more arid, but would have attracted humans. The crater was used as a landmark around 1871 by a man named Franklin, a scout for General Custer, and for years the crater actually carried the less grandiose title of Franklin's Hole. The thought that the crater had been created by volcanic forces, like a lot of the interesting geological features in the greater Flagstaff area, was the prevailing theory about its origins. This was bolstered by an 1891 visit by Grove Carl Gilbert, the chief geologist of the U.S. Geological Survey and a universally respected authority. He theorized that one explanation for the impact was a meteor strike, but made the incorrect assumption that the meteor would still have to be buried in the floor of the crater. When his test found no magnetic indications of an iron mass and other negative findings based on this assumption, he declared the crater had been made by a steam explosion due to volcanic activity below the surface. However, tales of a possible meteor strike and bits of iron stone found in the area continued to percolate until they reached the ears of a young mining engineer from Philadelphia named Daniel Berenger. Berenger, born in 1860, was a graduate from Princeton and the University of Pennsylvania. He had made his way to southern Arizona where he had purchased a couple silver mines. It was during a chance conversation on a hotel veranda in Tucson in 1902 that he first heard of the crater and the possibility of meteoric iron ore to be had. Working under the same assumption as Gilbert a decade earlier, that the meteor must be buried in the bottom of the crater, Berenger began to file mining claims for the site and arrived in 1903. Berenger would end up presenting two papers on the crater, one in 1906 and one in 1909 to the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. In these, he presented evidence that the crater was created by a meteor impact and not a steam explosion. However, the papers were not well received, due in part to his taking a swipe at the respected Gilbert and his conclusions. Berenger himself would spend the next 26 years, until his death in 1929, in a fruitless mining attempt to find the meteor, not realizing that the melted, mostly microscopic remains of it were all around him. He did have some satisfaction seeing more of the scientific community accept his hypothesis about a meteor strike. However, it wouldn't be until 1960 when longtime Flagstaff resident and astrogeologist Dr. Eugene Shoemaker, of the comet Shoemaker-Levy fame, 
was able to prove it definitively through impact and mineral analysis. In fact, from 1964 to 1972, astronauts in the Apollo program did extensive scientific training at Meteor Crater under the supervision of Shoemaker and others to know what to look for in the craters they might encounter on the moon. I'll shamelessly plug the website once again by saying I've put up some photos of a recent visit to Meteor Crater up on today's episode at azhistorypodcast.com. Of course, this wouldn't be a complete podcast about the natural geological wonders of Arizona if we didn't talk about the biggest, greatest hole of them all, the Grand Canyon. 277 miles long, up to 18 miles wide, and averaging a mile deep, there certainly is no other name to describe this amazing vista carved through the steady erosion of the Colorado River and its predecessors. But believe it or not, for years there has been a spirited debate among geologists about the canyon. Not so much about how it was formed, but when. Recent debate has come down to one issue. Is the canyon relatively new, formed only in the last 5 to 6 million years? Or is it much older, up to 70 million years old, with dinosaurs stomping along the rim in the colorful words of one newspaper article I found? There are supporters, detractors, and evidence for both sides in this argument. Then, in 2014, a team led by Dr. Carl Karlstrom of the University of New Mexico threw their own theory into the ring. Their suggestion? Both sides were right. In part. The theory, as Karlstrom explained to me in a phone interview, says that the solution to the debate is that there's an element of truth to both sides. Basically, the canyon that we recognize today, with its impressive statistics of being 277 miles long, is made up of five individual segments and each of these segments has their own complicated history and formation. According to Karlstrom, who's been working and researching in the canyon for more than three decades, Marble Canyon, which is just downstream of the Colorado's famous Horseshoe Bend near Page, and the westernmost segment that is north of Kingman are young, dating back only five to six million years ago. But before those formed, there were still low places, what are called Paleo Canyons, left over from even more ancient landscapes. Working inside what are now the borders of Grand Canyon National Park, Karlstrom and his team use thermochronology, which measures the cooling history of rocks to determine when the rocks we see today were brought near the surface, and found that this main segment of the Grand Canyon was partway carved 15 to 25 million years ago. There was also a Paleo Canyon, a precursor to this segment of the Grand Canyon, along the Hurricane Fault, which comes down from Utah and intersects the Colorado River west of Havasupai. Gravels left over from an ancient river in this segment have been dated as being 55 to 65 million years old. Keep in mind that at this time rivers flowed onto the Colorado Plateau in the opposite direction to today's Colorado River, so heading toward the north instead of the south. Then, about 15 million years ago, the eastern Grand Canyon was partially carved by an ancestral little Colorado River that flowed northwest, but did not drain all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, suggesting there could not have been one complete old canyon before then, Karlstrom explained. From 13 to 15 million years ago, lakes with no through-going rivers existed east of the Grand Canyon, today dubbed Lake Betahochi and Lake Hualapai. The Colorado River itself was formed about 6 million years ago as snowmelt from the Rockies found its way to the Gulf of Mexico, in part through these older Paleo Valleys. So it was a combination of downward integration, Lake Bidahochi overflowing for example, groundwater sapping, 
and headward erosion, where a stream expands its headwaters, causing the stream's channel to grow in the opposite direction of its flow, that help finally bring the disparate geological pieces together. And Carlstrom pointed out during our conversation that these forces of river integration almost always work together to form major river pathways. So all this is to say that the Grand Canyon as we conceive it today is young, carved by the Colorado River some 5 to 6 million years ago. But some of the underlying parts are definitely older, much older, than the whole. Karlstrom and his team's theory has not been unchallenged, but it is a fascinating middle ground in the continuing debate over one of the world's greatest marvels. And it is a marvel. Though Karlstrom pointed out that it is neither the deepest, longest, nor widest canyon on the planet, he said the Grand Canyon is a premier geological laboratory and a globally important secret. Leaving behind the canyon-carving debate about when the layers were exposed, what we do see now tells us an important story. The bottommost basement layers record the formation of North America nearly 2 billion years ago. Above that, the Grand Canyon supergroup rock formations tell the story of early supercontinents, such as Nuna and Rodinia, precursors to the more famous Pangaea. The Paleozoic layers from the Cambrian and Permian eras reveal the stories of the development of life in changing environments from somewhere between 541 to 270 million years ago. After that, we see the evidence of the uplift of the Colorado Plateau and Rocky Mountains, the effect of changing climates, and young tectonic activity. And you can see all this for yourself if you visit. Karlstrom was one of the forces behind setting up the Trail of Time at Grand Canyon National Park. This 4.6-kilometer-long trail, that's just under 3 miles for all of us in the U.S., represents 4.6 billion years of geologic history, with sample rocks placed along the trail at where they would have appeared on the timeline. Karlstrom and co-author Laura Crosley have also released a companion book, A Walking Guide for This Trail. Whether or not Karlstrom and his team are right about how the canyon was formed, as someone who's had the good fortune to stand upon both rims several times, I can tell you that you do not need to be a geologist to be overcome by the majesty of the place. There's a lot more I could say about what makes up Arizona's landscape. I haven't even touched on limestone. As you might know, combine that sedimentary rock with water and you get some fantastic natural wonders. That includes Karshner Caverns and Colossal Cave in southeast Arizona, Montezuma's Well, a large aquifer-fed sinkhole near Camp Verde, and Tonto Natural Bridge, thought to be the largest natural bridge in the world, formed out of a type of limestone called travertine. But I've billed this as a history podcast, so I suppose I should get back to that. So join me next week as we move from millions of years ago to thousands of years ago, and also from the ground under our feet to the things that grow and live on top of it. And finally, we'll answer the question of why it seems that everything living in Arizona wants to kill you. Special thanks this week go to Michael Conway of the Arizona Geological Survey, Dr. Carl Karlstrom of the University of New Mexico, and Jeff Beal with Behringer Meteor Crater. Just a reminder that the website for the podcast is azhistorypodcast.com, and you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at azhistorypod. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.